This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You may have noticed more people in your social circles getting sick with COVID. Though many cases are mild, the current surge of positive cases is impacting our health care facilities. Hospitals met today to talk about whether they need to return to a tighter no-visitor policy. We talked to Hilton Rathel, president of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, yesterday afternoon following the release of weekly COVID numbers by the state health department. Cases have been trending upwards over the last nine weeks. Rachel says Hawaii has had to bring in 200 traveling nurses and will likely order another 100 more to deal with health care workers who get sick. That's on top of our nursing shortage. Here's Rachel explaining the precautions the association plans to take. When we look at the latest numbers, our positivity rate for the PCR tests is, is actually running above 20% right now. Just to give you an example, during the Delta surge, we were looking at positivity rates of, you know, around 8, 10, 12 percent. So we are looking at positivity rates right now that are much higher than the Delta surge. But that, again, is because the majority of tests, PCR tests that are being done, the ones that are actually being reported, are being done to confirm, um, you know, positive test on a rapid test. And so there is a, definitely a lot of the virus out there. Everyone I talk to knows someone or has either just gotten it or had it or knows someone or more than one people have gotten it. Now, the good news in all of this is even though these uh, Omicron variants are out there and there's a couple of two or three different variants that are out there, they are very, very infectious. The good news is that because we have a very high rate of vaccinations in the, in the state, the impact on the hospitals and particularly the ICUs and in terms of deaths is much lighter than what it would have been earlier on in the pandemic. If we look at our numbers for today, for example, we have 151 patients in our hospitals across the entire state who have COVID. Now, of that, we think that approximately half of those are actually incidental COVID. So, in other words, they're someone who's got COVID, but they didn't, may not have even known they've got COVID, but they end up in a hospital, they get tested because we're still testing everyone who comes to a hospital. And a lot of people are finding out when they get admitted for some other reason that they have COVID. But so, so we do have 151, which is much higher than what it's been. Um, it's, that's much higher than what it's been for the last few months. But in terms of what's in the ICU, and that's a much better indicator of severity, as of today, we only have 13 COVID patients in our ICU across the entire state. And that ratio between the number of patients, COVID patients in the ICU versus the total COVID patients is a very important ratio. During the Delta surge, for example, we had 20, at the peak of that, we had 25 to 30% of our COVID hospitalizations were in the ICU. And right now we only have about 6% of our COVID patients are in the ICU. So that's a very, very important measure of severity. And what that tells us is that, and that and the total hospitalization number tells us is that even though there's a lot of infection out there, its impact on people in terms of hospitalization, even getting to the hospital or being in an ICU or the potential for dying is much, much lower than it has been certainly for the Delta surge and for the Omicron surge as well. What about the, the number of COVID cases, let's say, just among our healthcare workers? We are quite concerned about the impact of this particular surge, uh, the Omicron, the second Omicron surge, 
on our workforce. And we have a significant number of individuals who are out um, because even though the severity, as we've just talked about, is not necessarily low, we, anyone who is positive should and would, any healthcare worker who's positive should and would not be at work um, for a period of five to 10 days, depending on the severity of their symptoms. And so we are having to bring in workers again from the mainland. Right now we have around 200 mainland workers here in the state right now working in our hospitals and we're in the process of in the next few weeks of uh, planning on bringing in another hundred so now some of that is because we have an overall shortage of an ongoing shortage of healthcare workers particularly nurses but a big part of what we're dealing with right now is that on top of the normal shortage we have we have a lot of healthcare workers who are being uh, exposed or testing positive and we're taking all the precautionary steps and that is uh, having an impact on our workforce. Do you know what percentage? No, don't okay. don't have a percentage number. I just know how many staff, you know, so we're looking at, like I said, we have close to 200. Well, we have actually just over 200 staff on the ground right now that we've brought in from the mainland and, and looking at bringing in another 100 or so. But in terms of the percentage, we I don't have that number. Okay. Uh, what can you tell us about policies at different hospitals? I know um, Maui Memorial, I think, adjusted their you know, visitor restrictions. The hospitals have adjusted either up or down in terms of restrictions throughout the pandemic as appropriate. You know, we know that for patients, being in a hospital is a very stressful time in general. And we do want to provide support, you know, family support, support of friends, things like that. But then we have to balance that against the need to protect our patients and the staff and everyone who's in the hospital. And so we have made a number of adjustments over the time, but uh, we actually have a meeting again to, to meet with all the hospitals and we will be revisiting the status in terms of masking policies and visitor policies. I anticipate that we'll get to the point where the only visitors that will be allowed will be for childbirth or end of life or other very specific circumstances. You know, if someone needs an interpreter or someone like that, you know, we make uh, exceptions for that. But generally, what we're heading toward is allowing visitors only for childbirth, and, and this is a limited number of visitors, so only for childbirth and end of life or those other special circumstances. And, and that, again, is to protect our patients and to protect the staff, but also to protect the visitors as well. I anticipate probably this weekend or early next week that we'll have a more consistent policy across the state because we, you know, we don't want to inhibit visitors unnecessarily, but because of the increasing infection rate, the increasing hospitalization rate, we need to, we do need to implement some new, some restrictions to better manage and control the spread of this disease. And then do you have a sense as to what's happening in, uh, you know, our care homes or our, our, our long-term care facilities? Well, we still have the same staffing challenges. The staffing challenges we have in our hospitals also impact our nursing homes, our home health agencies, assisted living facilities. So all of our members are impacted because of the prevalent, the increasing prevalence of Omicron or this, this Omicron variant in the community. So they're all being impacted from a staffing perspective. In regard to visitors right now, they, our nursing homes are governed by CMS, and CMS at this point in time still requires that we allow visitors. But we are working to 
you know, for visitors to have them in open areas, in outdoor settings, under verandas, on lanais, things like that, to minimize the, you know, because we all know that the more air circulation there is, the less the chance of transmitting the disease. So while we are required by CMS to allow visitors at this time, we are working to ensure as safe an environment as possible for those visitors in those nursing homes. I don't know, anything else that you're hearing just on the uh, antiviral treatments? We are very fortunate that we do have some antivirals that are, that are very effective, that are out there, they're in good supply, they are, are available across the state. So if someone has tested positive, fortunately very few people who test positive actually need hospitalization. But in terms of managing the symptoms or helping to prevent hospitalizations, we have some very good therapeutic agents. Some of them have to be administered via an infusion, and some of them are oral that you can just take as a pill. So they are in plentiful supply right now or sufficient supply right now, which is very good news. And so we would encourage anyone who has has tested positive that they contact their physician and uh, to get access to these. We are seeing a higher incidence of flu, and we believe that is because, you know, a lot of people have stopped wearing masks. Uh, There's a lot of events that are going on, parties, celebrations, all sorts of different things going on. So we're definitely seeing a higher incidence of flu than what we've seen for the last two years. So we're having to deal with flu, and we're having to deal with this Omicron variant surge as well. What this tells us is that, Catherine, is that the... Flu, unfortunately, is still out there. You know, we were very fortunate for a couple of years not to have to deal with the flu much, but but people need to be mindful that the flu's out there. Now we've got the coronavirus out there. And so we do need to protect ourselves. So when congregating, you know, people should, first of all, get vaccinated. If they can get vaccinated, they should get vaccinated. They should get the, you know, the primary series and their boosters. And then if you are going to congregate, do it outside as much as possible or in areas that are very, very well ventilated. And if you are going into a crowded environment, now would be a very good time, would be very prudent to wear a mask in a crowded environment to help prevent the spread, further spread of this disease. You know, and I was, I think, looking on the dashboard and it just looked like our, um, the second booster rates were, were still pretty low. Yeah, unfortunately, we've not done as we've done well with the primary series, but we have a lot of people. Um, about roughly 40% of the people who are eligible for the first booster haven't even gotten it yet, mm. and the second booster, the numbers are even are much worse than that. So, there is a lot of opportunity for people to get boosters, and the, the certainly at least the first booster. You know, the second booster, if um, is recommended, particularly for anyone who's very elderly, frail or is immunized in, in any way, um, immunocompromised in any way, they should definitely get the first and the second booster. Um, but the, the population in general, anyone who qualifies, should certainly get the primary series and the first booster. And that the evidence is very, very clear that getting the primary series and the booster lessens the severity of the disease if you are exposed and certainly reduces materially the chances of hospitalization and in particular severe hospitalization and any worse consequence. That was Hilton Rathel of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii talking about the staffing situation in our healthcare facilities across the state as COVID cases rises. Uh, since we chatted with Rathel, the association uh, released today's COVID hospitaliz- hospitalization count, which is now up from 151 to 160. 
You know, COVID continues to be a top of mind issue for many of our listeners, and sometimes they share their stories or questions with us via our talkback line. Here's a voicemail we received recently about COVID deaths and their relationship to media coverage. There was much talk about the uh, pandemic, et cetera, and so on, and what to do and not to do. I'm interested in some statistics about the incidence of death uh, during the pandemic, which I think has been underestimated, but I was interested in some analysis from some source about the number of deaths that were caused by people who listened to Fox and got all the felonious information uh, and didn't get uh, an injection or uh, anything and then passed on. I think there are statistics somewhere I would appreciate if uh, it was brought up or at some future program. Anyway, thank you. And the long-term effects of COVID also weigh on the minds of many. Here's a voicemail from Merrill on Hawaii Island. My call is regarding long COVID. In October 2020, I was diagnosed with COVID being COVID asymptomatic. And I've never heard any info regarding symptoms of long COVID. I learned from individuals on the mainland, only two, symptoms they have been constantly suffering though they survived covid but they're experiencing long covid it was only what they said that i recognize i may be experiencing long covid i would like to know what source i can go to for confirmation what are the symptoms who knows the symptoms how can i learn more about it. Thank you very much. Mahalo and aloha. And thank you for that voicemail, Merrill. You know, and the best thing that anyone can do when they have questions about COVID is to consult with their doctor. For additional resources, Queens Health Systems has a post-COVID recovery and care clinic. You can learn more by going to covid.queens.org or calling 1-808-691-2619. That number again, one 691 2619. If you have a comment or question about issues that we can cover on the conversation, please send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call us 808-792-8217. You are tuned to the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we remember a pioneering scientist whose work in Hawaii brought about significant advances in our understanding of volcanoes. He was born in 1871 in Philadelphia and earned his Ph.D. in geology from Harvard University in 1897. After his first few years of study in a laboratory, he longed for something greater. He became convinced of the need for field studies, saying, Whereas small-scale experiments in the laboratory helped me to think about the details of nature, there remained the need to measure nature itself. End quote. He spent the next decade traveling to the sites of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions around the world. In 1909, he came to Hawaii and decided that Hawaii Island was the place for him to continue his life's work. 
He founded the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory and directed it from 1912 to 1940. We're looking for the name of this foremost volcanologist for today's quiz. Is it on the tip of your tongue? Call 808-941-3689 from Oahu or 877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nerit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeritHawaii.com. It is now time for our daily dose of reality. We check in with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, we have drama at the Honolulu Police Department. Yeah, <laughs> we just got a new chief, or just about to be a new chief. Uh, Joe Logan still has to get a medical clearance before he's sworn in. And then the news broke yesterday, what, not even 48 hours after... Uh, Logan was named by the police commission to be the new chief. Um, this story is from Jacob uh, Giannis, who covers comps for us. You know, what HB does is they generally put out um, highlights, you know, reports, posts, they call them, about arrest not long after they happen. There are some exceptions. They're not going to report on minors being involved or sex assaults or sensitive material, other sensitive material. But in this case, HBD decided to put a hold on uh, one of those media reports about the recent arrest of Joe Logan's son. His name is uh, Zach uh, Zane, excuse Zane. me, Zane Logan. He's 36, and uh, he was arrested on Tuesday on suspicion of assault in Alamoana uh, Beach Park. And uh, but they did not contact. Not, not only did they not tell the media, they were waiting until they spoke to Joe Logan himself to to confirm that it was the son. And, and interim chief Roddy Vanek is, you know, saying we're, we're not being secretive or anything. We're just, this is just what we do procedure-wise. But it sure does raise questions about transparency because that's been a problem, as we all know, uh, with HBD for a long time. Yes. And, uh, you know, I know that, uh, I guess at that news conference yesterday, um, you know, the interim chief had said that, you know, we we followed, uh, or we handled this in any, you know, like any normal case. But you know, you're kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Vanek specifically said, that, look, it's completely false that we handle this in some sort of special way. That's just not true. Um, by the way, Zane Logan does remain in custody. Uh, HPD is pursuing felony charges. The allegation, I said the word assault, but it also includes his information, apparently with a hand tool. I, I don't quite know what to make of that. Uh, Joe Logan, uh, by the way, is um, saying he didn't know about the policy because the posting policy, because he hasn't been with HPD for right for 20 years. He's been doing other things since that time and was just was simply not aware uh, of these uh, media uh, report policies. Well, you know, I think you and I both worked in newsrooms where, you know, we rely on the scanners uh, and, uh, you know, news teams get dispatched based on what we hear on the scanners. But the 
the newsrooms don't have scanners, and we now are relying on these posts. But if there is a directive, <laughs> do not post to media, you know, it certainly raises a question of transparency, and do we need to get those uh, scanners out there in those newsrooms? You know, Vanek at this press conference yesterday uh, said, you know, they didn't want the timing of the incident, meaning the arrest of, of Zane Logan, to somehow compromise their investigation. Uh, but Vanek did not elaborate on, on what he meant by that. So some of the reporters were sort of scratching her head. It, it looks like, by the way, uh, once Joe Logan is sworn in, he he will be hiring or asking Zanek to stay on as uh, in a leadership position, I think third in line. Um, he also said this, and this is coming from Joe Logan, um, in terms of that investigation into his own son, Zane, over this allegation of assaults, Joe Logan says he's not going to be involved in any way uh, as chief. He's not going to be even kept apprised of developments. He made that clear. Yeah, well, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what the commission thinks about this. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know when their next meeting is, but it certainly raises some questions. And, and you, you know, I would kind of want to know if uh, if this was vetted, you know, if maybe somebody asked him during the course of the interviews, uh, is there any reason, you know, that there might be a, a problem? <laughs> you know, you know whether it's a, a, a family member that might have a, a rap sheet or might have run in you know, with the officers, um, you kind of wonder what they what they knew or know. Right. Uh, in fact, if you read the comments uh, on our story, and I'm sure this probably is true of uh, the Star Advertiser and, and your report and, and uh, Hawaii News Now, you know, there were people raising questions in the comments. How did we not know this? How did the police commission not figure out? I mean, it wasn't just this this one arrest. Apparently, there's a, a bit of a, a bit of a history with with Zane being in trouble with the law. And remember that uh, the police commission hired a consultant. It took over a year, by the way, to, to get the new hire. I should just add that uh, Joe Logan did say his son Zane is accountable for his own actions. That's his business, as troubling as it is. And he also said, "Look, there will be no preferential treatment." This is coming from the chief regarding his son's investigation. Yeah, well, well, we'll see where this takes us. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To, to read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from St. Andrew's Schools in downtown Honolulu with summer programs including summer school and adventure camp for boys and girls starting in June. Registration at standrewschoolsorg slash summer. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Colleen Morrow, author of Spiritual Telepathy. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about ancient techniques that will help you access the wisdom and guidance of your own soul. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, offering five direct flights weekly from Honolulu to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. More information at alohaaircargo.com. 
This month marks the fourth anniversary of the Kilauea eruption in the lower Puna area of Hawaii Island. It was the most destructive volcanic episode in the United States since the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. Now the USGS Vol- Volcano Hazards Program has a new strategic science plan that seeks to target monitoring gaps on the 35 most threatening volcanoes in the nation, including several in Hawaii. Charlie Mandeville coordinates the Volcano Hazards Program and will oversee the new plan. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote from the USGS headquarters in Virginia. With our current monitoring techniques, how precise can our predictions be about when a volcano will erupt, and how does that compare to the monitoring systems we have for other natural disasters, such as hurricanes, where we can see it, we know when it's coming, we have a good idea as to when it'll make landfall, and we can ask people to prepare in advance? I'm glad you've asked this question. And part of our answer to that is dependent on how good is your monitoring system on each individual volcano, or in the case of volcanoes on the Big Island of Hawaii, how good is your monitoring system, not only at the volcano summit, but down along the rift zones that extend from the summit down the flanks of the volcano. And I will say this, the more varied type of instruments you have on the volcano, the better you're going to be able to detect eruption precursors that happen before an eruption typically weeks to sometimes months and certainly days before an eruption. And just to give you an example, during uh, the days before the 2018 eruption of Kilauea, we knew there was an increase in the number of earthquakes happening beneath that volcano, initially beneath Kilauea's summit, but then we were able to watch the locations of the small magnitude earthquakes migrate down to the lower east rift zone portion of the volcano. Simultaneous to that happening was the fact that you have GPS instruments on the volcano, geodetic instruments that actually sense ground deformation. And they indicated to us that the ground was in fact swelling in the lower east rift zone of Kilauea. And that coupled with the seismic events, the increase in the earthquakes that occurred, as well as their changing location downslope to the volcano, told us magma was moving from the summit of the volcano down to the lower reaches and flanks of the volcano. And simultaneous to that, we were also seeing the lava lakes at Kilauea summit and the lava lake in Pu'o'o crater subside to the point where the lava could no longer be seen. So all all those things happening sequentially and simultaneously told us an eruption was imminent within about two days. And we successfully predicted that eruption on uh, April 30th. And on May May 3rd, we had the first fissures being opened up in the uh, Leilani Estates and Lanapuna Garden District. Our efforts nationally are going to move towards getting the right instrumentation in place to actually be able to forecast eruptions at least on days to weeks notice. And and the good thing, unlike earthquake hazards where you don't know where the next fault is going to fail, 
you may know where the faults are, but you don't know where the failure point will be in the next earthquake until it happens. With volcanoes, we know where they are, they're not moving, <laughs> but if we can put instruments on their surface to see the ground deformation happening as the volcano is being pressurized at depth, we'll see that swelling. It's measured in centimeters per day. In a good network, we'll have at least a day or two of advanced warning. So we knew that there was an imminent eruption in 2018. It was still, I understand, the most costly eruption in the United States since 1980. Are there additional vulnerabilities that this plan is trying to address, not just in terms of our monitoring, but also how we work with different partners in the community to ensure that the damage is minimized? Yes, so in other words, we can't stop volcanoes from erupting because the forces that originate an eruption are, are much beyond our control and our technological control. Our job really is to be able to detect the eruption precursors at an early enough stage to alert the public and to alert the land managers and the emergency responders that an eruption is probably imminent and to take effective hazard mitigation steps, which in most cases mean evacuations. But at least our warnings will typically be days to weeks before that happens. The other really critical aspect of this is to do significant community outreach and education to the people who could potentially be impacted by volcanic eruptions through preparation and town hall meetings and lectures that educate the people as to what are the hazards that they are exposed to posed by this volcano that they're living next to and what are going to be our warning products that come out and how can they follow our own monitoring efforts on that volcano. I'm sure the community surrounding Kilauea is well aware of what the potential harms of a volcanic eruption can be in light of the 2018 flows. But the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory is responsible for monitoring sits volcanoes in Hawaii that have erupted in the last thousand years, I believe. Yes. Where do those volcanoes fit into this plan? Mauna Loa is also, an, you know, a, a, it's the world's biggest volcano, essentially. And it's erupted as recently as 1980, you know, 83, 84. And when it erupts, it tends to erupt big. So in other words, we have to have instruments, adequate numbers of instruments on Mauna Loa and Hualalai, just as we do on Kilauea. And even though Kilauea is the one that has an active lava lake right now, and is actively emitting, you know, volcanic gases, we can't take our eye off the ball on the monitoring instruments that are also installed upon Mauna Loa and its rift systems, as well as Hualalai. Is there a particular volcano where you think we really need to, in Hawaii, where you think we really need to beef up our observation? We probably need to beef up the instrumentation on the southwest side of Mauna Loa. And, and also uh, plans are in the works to, you know, increase the monitoring instruments down the lower east rift zone of Kilauea. 
Zooming out from Hawaii, is there a particular volcano that keeps you up at night? Yes, Glacier Peak in Washington State. And, and I'll tell you why. On Glacier Peak right now, there is one seismometer and that's it. That's the extent of the monitoring network on Glacier Peak. And Glacier Peak is, is in a volcano that has erupted several times in the past 11,000 years. And it tends to erupt explosively. We know this just by looking at the deposits around the volcano. We can tell what were the reaches of the different volcanic hazards on the landscape around the volcano. So in quoting the Cascades Volcano Observatory scientist in charge, John Major, I would say, Glacier Peak is a woefully under-monitored volcano given what it can do. That was Charlie Mandeville, coordinator for the USGS Volcano Hazards Program. He was speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the new strategic science plan to expand volcanic monitoring. Mandeville says that the program hopes to work with international partners to protect communities from violent eruptions. We'll have links to the full plan on the conversation page of our website later today. I'm a man on fire Walking through your street With one guitar And two dancing feet Only one desire That's left in In today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about a founding father of volcanology in Hawaii. He spent the first decade of the 20th century traveling around the world to scenes of destruction from volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. He said, I realize that the killing of thousands of persons by subterranean machinery totally unknown to geologists was worthy of a life's work. His studies brought him to Hawaii in 1909, where he remained for the rest of his career. He's best remembered as the founder of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, uh, which he ran from 1912 to 1940. He even had a museum named after him. And we asked you for his name, which is Thomas Augustus Jagger Jr., uh, both the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory and the Jagger Museum in Hawaii Volcanoes uh, National Park sustained significant damage during the 2018 Kilauea eruption, but Thomas Jagger's legacy lives on. And congrats to our winner, Boyd of Hawaii Island. You got it right. Um, that's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. Do you know someone with a military experience they'd like to preserve for future generations? This June, HPR and StoryCorps are gathering our community stories for the Military Voices Initiative. Our Oahu dates are fully booked, and a few more spots are left for Hilo and our statewide virtual recording. You miss out? You can still join our wait list. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash StoryCorps. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Beach House Restaurant on Kauai. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application by searching the Beach House Kauai. Rain comes, rain comes down. In-
25 years ago, Hawaii musician John Cruz released his debut album, Acoustic Soul. Back then, he was best known for being the brother of Ernie Cruz Jr. of the Ka'au Crater Boys, one of the most popular local music groups in the 1990s. But with the release of Acoustic Soul in 1996, John's career took off. He won two Nahoku Hanohana Awards, and the album went on to become one of the best-selling Hawaiian records of all time. To commemorate the anniversary of the release, Cruz will be performing a handful of concerts around the state over the next month. He took time from rehearsals to reminisce with the conversations Russell Subiano. When you were writing and recording the songs, did you have any idea that it would make the impact that it did? Well, actually, I had an idea because uh, before the songs were even recorded, I had been playing with my brother's band, Kyle Crater Boys. So when I got back from the mainland, I instantly jumped into their band and they were one of the biggest bands at the time. So I had been singing a handful of these songs in concert in front of people who were interested in Hawaiian music and getting positive responses, especially with Island Style. That song was like an instant hit even before it was recorded, just from playing it live. So I knew the song was special already in people's minds and stuff and hearts, as long as I didn't screw it up when I recorded it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Shino, I'd already been playing those songs live, so I had a feeling that at least that the songs were connecting. I know that you grew up on Oahu in a very musically inclined family. I think I remember reading in your liner notes that you had spent some time on the East Coast playing gigs in places like Martha's Vineyard all the way on the other side of the country before coming home to record Acoustic Soul. What kind of influence do you think your exposure to other parts of the world and other types of music had on your own musical style? Oh, huge. It had a huge, I mean, that's... The reason why I went to the East Coast, my intention was heading to New York mm -hmm. because that's where it all, all that music that I used to dream about playing and dream about seeing, you know, all these bands and stuff, I knew they were there. And so when I got there, I started playing in blues bands. I played in reggae bands. I played in any, any, any kind of bands that I could possibly get into. I would just play and try to immerse myself in the scene. I was just soaking it up, you know. I noticed that some of your music has a pretty strong Motown influence as well. Was that some of the music you listened to growing up? Yeah, for sure. Well, my dad was a country singer, so I grew up listening to the country and playing and singing country music. And my mom was into Motown and a lot of that R&B stuff. So uh, it was like second nature, you know, as far as those early influences. You know, there was always a, a record spinning at my house. You know, there's always an album or a single, you know. Al Green, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, all that stuff was constantly being spun at home. That and, of course, you know, Casey Kasem, Top 40 stuff. And in Hawaii, there wasn't that much of it being played live. 
I noticed that when I was growing up and started to get around and, and see live music, there wasn't much of an original music scene at all, really. Yeah. I mean, there was one club, Anna Bananas was the only club that really uh, encouraged people to play original music. So that was sort of a little mecca, you know, where I would go and just check out bands playing their own stuff. It was wild to me because a lot of the musicians who I knew who were working musicians all played in cover bands in Waikiki, you know, pretty much. Right. Either covering top 40 stuff or playing Hawaiian music. And as much as I loved that, I wanted a something a little more. And that's what led me to get as far away from this place as I could possibly get. How was your musical style received by your family when Acoustic Soul came out and when they were able to kind of hear how unique your sound was? Well, yeah, because you know, um, I was up there for about 13 years, but I'd always come home, you know. When I'd come home, we'd always be jamming, sit around jamming or some family party or something like that. And so it was already um, coming out. And uh, yeah, they totally supported it. I remember when Chardet's album, that first song, Smooth Operator, came out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got a call from my sister Desiree when I was up there in, in college. She was like, oh, my God, John, there's somebody on the radio that stole your sound. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she's like, that Smooth Operator song. It sounds like your kind of style, you know. Yeah. And, and I remember when that came out, it was nothing like it on the radio. Right. But it was that, you know, sort of influence of a... Uh, soul a little caribbean kind of style island you know caribbean style uh, rhythms and pop and so that was a little bright spot of the whole top 40 thing i said oh wow maybe there's a chance at something probably the most beloved song on your album acoustic soul certainly your most streamed song is island style for a song that describes what it's like to live in hawaii you could have sung about going to the beach or hanging out with friends or going to luau's, but you included lines about helping your grandma clean her yard. What led you to write those lyrics? Well, I started writing it when I was still living in New York, just missing home, you know, and my brother Ernie used to send me all the latest music, you know, when a Hawaii band would come out with something, he would send me, you know, a cassette tape or something of it. You know, it was cassettes back then. And, uh, you know, I would be anticipating this because he would be saying like, oh, you remember so-and-so, guys? Yeah, what, it just came out with a new album. It's pretty good, blah, blah, blah. He's getting played on the radio. Send me it. And so I'd be anticipating it. And um, yeah, I always kind of would be not disappointed, but in one sense, it, it, it sort of uh, um, supported my reason for leaving in the first place mm -hmm. in that the music didn't seem like there was anything new being injected into the music in Hawaii, except the Hawaiian stuff, you know, reggae was a huge influence. So the song was, uh, you know, I when, when thinking about, okay, what, what, you know, what do I really miss about Hawaii? And at the same time, what was I expecting to hear, you know, when he sends me something. And so that first verse, mama's in the kitchen and I on the island, good island style came right out. And I just had that for a little while. Now, when I came home, finished the song, it was just, just another thing, you know, just thinking about, wow, what, you know, what, what in particular is, for me, do I, is Hawaii? What, what does Hawaii mean? And, you know, when you're living on the East Coast, people go, you're from Hawaii. What are you doing here? It's so beautiful there. Don't you miss it? Don't you miss the beaches? Uh, kind of, you know what I mean? But I, we've had that all our lives, you know what I mean? So it's not like we know it's always going to be here. But really what I, you know, as far as the grammar verse was just something that was very particular to me that just said Hawaii 
at least my Hawaii, you know, we all have our own experiences, but um, that was a classic. My mom, because a few periods of my young childhood, we lived with my grandma, my mom and my brothers and sisters, you know, in transition periods and stuff. So it's always like, hey, go help your grandma clean yard. You know, instead of watching cartoons Saturday morning, you know, whatever. It's like, hey, get outside, go help grandma clean yard. So that, that's just, a, that's where that came from. Yeah, I love it. It's my favorite line just because I had the same experience spending time with my grandma in her yard. One of the other songs on Acoustic Soul, Kawaile Hua Aalaka Honua, is your only Hawaiian language song on the album. Can you talk about why you decided to record and include that specific song? You know, growing up, I never really sang that much as kids. We never sang that much Hawaiian music. Like, I have friends who are Hawaiian, who, you know, local kids, who that's all they listened to was, you know, KCCN. I mean, you went to their house, that's all you ever heard was Hawaiian music, you know? Any records that were on were just Hawaiian music. And our house wasn't like that. You know, I wanted to include a, a, a song that was Hawaiian language song. And in thinking about what song I could record, I was like, hmm, I think I know all the words to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Besides that, I remember when Frank Hewitt, who wrote the song, he received the Nahoku Hanohano for Song of the Year for that song. And it was on the Casimero's Brothers' first album, you know, when they left the Sunday Manoa and did their first album as a group. Mm -hmm. I just remember him going up and receiving the Hoko Award, you know, for Song of the Year because it goes to the writer the Song of the Year Award. And it was just a cool moment for me to look back on because, you know, of course, we're musicians, so we're always watching the Hoku Awards, you know, since they first started, kind of anticipating, you know, who's going to win, whatnot. And uh, I just remember it was a beautiful moment, and I just loved his energy whenever I'd see anything about it. So I wanted to do a... So that was a, made the song even more uh, special for me to be able to sing that song. It's a great song, and you do such a great rendition of it. It's one of my favorite tracks on the album. Your manager, Mark Tarone, has said that Acoustic Soul is a statement of your core values and a quest to inspire Hawaiians and people of Hawaii to see what we can achieve when we commit to being true to ourselves and not settling for simply good enough. Has the message you set out to share when you first recorded Acoustic Soul, is it still the same or has it evolved over time? Um, it's mostly kind of stayed the same. Um, you know, I, I, fortunately, you know, music is a big part of my life and I'm, I'm able to do it in a way that connects with people. And I've found that whenever I'm playing music that I'm not, you know, that I'm playing for other reasons or whatever, you know, it never connects as much as I want it to. But when I'm playing stuff that connects with me, it seems to connect with people. So just trying to be, uh, uh, just trying to be honest with, of course, lyrically, of course, first off, because that's the one of the main things, and then musically, you know, wanting to, uh, be something coming from me in particular, you know, yeah. even when I've chose to do cover songs, even when live, you know, when I'm playing live and stuff, I always just try to, um, you know, because when you're playing in bars, because I did it for years, you know, you're always trying to think, okay, like. Clubs want you to play a lot, some of the latest, not they want you to play it, but it's sort of like inferred, you know what I mean? That you, if you, and then you kind of feel like you have to because people's attention spans can be, you know, fleeting. 
But no matter what it is, whether it's a song I wrote or a song that someone else wrote and sang, I just try to get into the song and come at it from me as opposed to uh, just think of it as a song that everybody knows or something, you know? Yeah. Because because if I try to play it like some, you know, like it's supposed to be, I'm not going to get it anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Really. So uh, I might as well go all in with myself because uh, that seems to have uh, that seems to be the most um, honest way of doing it, you know. And I think people can uh, sense the sincerity of someone doing their thing, you know. So it's I don't know, it's been working so far. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, John. Thank you. That was famed local musician John Cruz talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the 25th anniversary of the release of his debut album, Acoustic Soul. Cruz will be performing on Hawaii Island on Saturday and his concerts scheduled for Maui and Oahu next month. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, you need a mental health day after the headlines of this week? Well, that's on our lineup for Friday. Give us some feedback about the Texas tragedy or the latest drama around the newly selected Honolulu police chief. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.